Heavenly Father, we have spoken, saying about your amazing grace and knowing you, Jesus, that there is no greater thing. And I pray that that would be true in our hearts and our minds, and especially as we open up the word. Lord, I pray that we would come to know Christ and see him even more clearly in this time that we have. Thank you for this Sunday that you have given us to meet together and to worship and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And in 1 Peter 5, I'll be reading verses 6 through 11. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The scripture I just read comes from the Apostle Peter. And we know him as one of the main players in the book of Acts, and also as the one who wrote 1st and 2nd Peter. Peter was also known as the rock, which has a nice ring to it. Especially uh, any pastor would be envious of that title. And the guest pastor today is the rock. It's a great ring. And Peter gets this name. It comes at the moment recorded in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? His disciples answer, John the Baptist. Elijah, Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. But Jesus probed further, says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. At that moment, Jesus says to Simon, you are Peter, which is a play on the Greek word for rock, Petra. You are Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock I shall build my church meaning that Peter is the rock, not in and of himself, but based on his claim that Jesus is the Christ. And the church will be built upon this confession and also upon the words of the apostles as they speak in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit as it's been revealed by the Father. And we hear their words in the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. But though it is true that Peter penned these words in 1 Peter 5, I must say that this is a total bait and switch right now. Because Peter wasn't always the rock. There was a time when he was just simply Simon, the fisherman. So though I began with 1 Peter 5, we'll have to come back to it later, towards the end of the sermon, after we've taken some time to walk in the footsteps of Simon. And we'll begin back in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. This takes place in Luke 5, again, before Peter is the rock, when he was just Simon the fisherman. 
Jesus is just beginning his public ministry, and he was healing, and he was teaching about the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus is in Peter's boat. And after he gets through speaking, he essentially turns to Peter and says, Go fish. Peter says, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing. And here's the rub. Peter was a professional fisherman. And so you can kind of figure that Peter in his mind was thinking, okay, Jesus, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. You are a profound teacher. I won't give you any help on how to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Please don't help me with my fishing. Because Peter understood that Fishing takes place only at night is when you catch fish, not during the day. But what Peter did not realize was at this moment, Jesus was a fisherman, and he was about to come up with a great catch. This was his way of catching Peter. Like every good fisherman, Jesus looks for his fish right where they are, in their daily activities, in their circumstances, and he seeks to take the circumstances of our life and to point us to the reality of the blessings of the kingdom of God. The fish in this story point to the abundant blessings and the riches of the grace in Christ. The reality is that apart from God's grace, there are no blessings in this life. Again, apart from Christ, there is not one blessing in this life apart from His grace. But too often, we have our eyes closed to the blessings of God's grace, which are meant to point us to the kingdom of God. As if the ultimate source of our blessing is our own strength or our own sheer luck, our own determination, our own wisdom and wise decisions. But ultimately, God is the true source of every blessing in this life. And Peter has his eyes open to the grace of God and the kingdom of God. Sure enough, they catch so many fish that their nets were breaking and the boat was sinking. Peter's response is to fall to his knees and say, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter is seized with the reality that the man standing in front of him is no mere man. And so Peter does what anybody else in the scripture, he takes the posture of anyone else that comes in the presence of God. He falls on his face, recognizing that God's glory is too awesome for a sinner to bear. Peter is undone, so much so that Jesus says, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. 
Jesus had a plan for Peter's life. So Peter and the others left everything astonished, and they followed Jesus. So here's my jingle. If you're into jingles, here it is. Jesus calls ordinary people to get caught up in his extraordinary grace. Jesus calls ordinary men and women, like Simon, to be anchored in his extraordinary grace. Over the course of the next few years, Peter would have many opportunities to be anchored in Christ's extraordinary grace. We could call these Peter's teachable moments. And in particular, I will look at the section of Scripture from Matthew 14 to 17. So feel free to turn there to Matthew 14 is where I'll start, but you'll have to follow quick because I'm going to rapidly walk through or maybe fly through some of Peter's teachable moments. Matthew 14, Peter was there when Jesus multiplied the five loaves of bread and the two fish and fed the 5,000, which is no small task. He was there when Jesus walked on water, and he was also there in that same water sinking when Jesus reached out his hand, grabbed a hold of him, and said, Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? In Matthew chapter 15, Peter was there when Jesus healed the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and so many others. And in Matthew 16, based on all these extraordinary events and manifestations of the grace of God, Peter rightly confessed Jesus as Christ, son of the living God. And then we see this lived out. In Matthew 17, Peter was there at the transfiguration when Jesus gave him a glimpse of the reality that indeed Jesus is the son of the living God. Peter was there when Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes turned white as light. And appearing with Jesus was Moses and Elijah, which is very fitting since the law and the prophets were to testify to Jesus. We have Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, one of the prophets that testify and appear with the Son of God. Peter heard the voice of God say, This is my Son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. And again, at this moment, Peter is on his face. And again, Jesus comes over, touches him. He says, Have no fear. Oh, Peter experienced many teachable moments. So it should be easier for Peter to leave everything behind and follow Jesus, right? Peter was there when God said, this is my son, listen to him. So it should be easy for Peter to listen to God and to listen to Jesus, right? No, it's just not always that easy, is it? No matter what teachable moments we might have experienced yesterday, no matter what in yesterday, the way we might have witnessed and experienced the grace of God in our lives, we are prone tomorrow to wander from his grace. And we'll see how this plays out in Peter's life. Often this takes place due to fear and doubt and pride, and we see this clearly with Peter. We'll have to fast forward to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. The context here is this is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And this would be their last meal together before the crucifixion. Jesus, in Luke 22, is telling his disciples how he will suffer and be betrayed. And in the context right after this, it is amazing to me. In verse 24, 
Luke tells us that a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here Jesus is telling them about how he will suffer and be betrayed, and they start fighting over which one of them is going to be the greatest. And if I was a betting man, I would bet the house that Peter had a dog in on that fight. The the dispute arose because ordinary men are seeking to be extraordinary, but according to their own power and their own strength, with their own wisdom, and for the sake of their own name and for their own glory. But Jesus is calling ordinary people to get caught up in his extraordinary grace for the name of Christ and for the sake and glory of God. And it is God who supplies all of the grace, all of the wisdom, all of the power, all of the strength, everything we might need for that moment. But Satan loves it when we seek to be extraordinary apart from the grace of God. Because on that moment, we're focused on exalting ourselves rather than delighting in the two greatest commandments, which are loving God and loving our neighbor. I find it interesting as the disciples are disputing over who is the greatest. At this moment, Satan enters the scene. We see this in Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Our English translations cannot do justice to this passage because of the Greek word you. In verse 31, in Greek, the two times that you is used, it's in the plural. In other words, Jesus is saying, Satan has demanded to have you all, all of the disciples, that he may sift you all like wheat. But then in verse 32, the you is in the singular. In other words, Jesus is saying, but Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith in particular, may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It is amazing thought here that God incarnate is praying for Peter. And I'll go ahead right now and spoil the end of the story. Peter's going to end up okay. He will, because Jesus loves him despite his pride, his fear, his failings. And because the grace of Christ is sufficient for him. But more than that, Peter's going to be okay in the end because we see here that Jesus prays for him, that his faith may not fail. And this should bring great comfort to us because the scriptures are clear that Jesus lives to pray for us as well, especially in Hebrews 7, 28. Jesus is is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father interceding on the behalf of of believers in Christ. So even in our darkest hours, when we cannot rely on our own strength, we still can rely on the faithfulness of Christ. In the dark hours, we can rely on the reality that Christ prays for us, that our faith may not fail. The scriptures are clear that no one can snatch us out of his hands. And that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that is in, or the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Should blow our minds, God incarnate, praying 
that we shall not be separated. Peter's response to all this is that he is ready to go to prison and to death. These are bold words from the rock. Jesus' response to Peter, you'll deny me three times this very day before the rooster crows. Indeed, dark hours are in store for both Jesus and Peter. And as the story goes on, Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. And he asks Peter to pray that he may not fall into temptation. And so Jesus goes a distance away, and he begins to pray as well. He is asking that the Father would remove the cup of wrath that he must drink if it is his Father's will. And Jesus, the scriptures say, is in so much agony that he sweats drops of blood, and that his Father in heaven actually sends an angel to attend to him and to strengthen him. And where is Peter in this moment? He's sleeping. Jesus is left to struggle and suffer alone. The story continues that Jesus is betrayed by Judas, and he's arrested. And we can pick up the story in verse 54. And as I read this section, the question I want us to consider is, where is Peter? Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with them, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Where's Peter? Scripture says he's following at a distance. How can that be? He's had astonishing, teachable moments of the extraordinary grace of God. He caught all those fish. He walked on water for a second with, with Jesus until he began to go down. He was there when Jesus grabbed him out of the water. He was there for Jesus' profound teaching. He was there for all the miracles. He was there for the transfiguration. And, he, and Peter himself said, made the commitment to Christ. He was willing to go the distance for him no matter what. So why did his faith fail? In a word, fear. Peter left everything to follow Jesus except fear. It is risky following Jesus. Peter's reputation and his life are at stake. And at this point, Peter doesn't actually know where following Jesus will really lead. I think this passage calls us to ask the question, where am I in relation to Christ? Am I following at a distance? What are the circumstances that cause you to follow at a distance? I bet your life isn't at stake, but what about your reputation? Do you fear your reputation if you get pegged as a follower of Christ and if you seek to stand for godly convictions? Following Christ is risky because we do not always know where it leads. Peter had a great agenda. He had the agenda 
for a Messiah that would conquer. And so it seemed as though Jesus was not pulling through. And oftentimes we might doubt because we have an agenda. And at times it seems as though God is not pulling through. Our plans are failing. And like Peter, we often doubt when God doesn't seem to pull through according to our agenda. And yes, God will disrupt our plans, absolutely, because he has a better plan. The question I'm left with is this. Am I willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost and no matter where it leads? The dark hours continue. Peter denies Jesus three times, and immediately during the third denial, the rooster crows. Verse 61 says this, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. How would you describe that look? This stops me in my tracks. How would you describe the look? I believe that, the, that how we perceive the look on Jesus' face is linked to how we think God sees us when we mess up. Is it a look of anger and disgust? As if, get out of my sight. If that's our perception of how God looks at us, then the natural response for us will be to run and hide. And Satan is always seeking opportunity to whisper to us that indeed God wants nothing to do with you. Go and hide. You loser, you failure. Get out of his sight. But that's not the look. I'm convinced scripture teaches us the look is not anger and disgust, but rather it's the look of one who carries the weight of Isaiah 53. That is the suffering servant of the Lord. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah 53. Again, I believe Peter had the look of one who carries the weight of this passage of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. I, this, I, I believe the scriptures would lead us to understand the look as one of sorrow and grief and sadness more than rebuke. And if there was a hint of, I told you so, Peter, it would be this. It would be in the context of the prophecy that, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may fail, and when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Verse 62 says that Peter went out and wept bitterly because he failed his friend and his master. But this is not the end of the story. The Gospel of Mark, in fact, has a great nugget for us that we need to add in here. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Specifically, verses 1 through 7. Mary Magdalene and the mother of James were going to the tomb of Jesus. They find that the the stone had been rolled away, and a man is sitting there dressed in a white robe. And he says in verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. 
But go, tell the disciples and Peter. When teaching on this passage about a year ago to a group of high school students, specifically on this section where he says, go tell the disciples and Peter, I just said to them, help me out with something. Is it as if Jesus is saying, go tell the disciples, oh, might as well tell that scoundrel Peter as well. Is that the context? One of the students actually looked and said, oh, yeah, because he's unfit at this point because he's denied him to be a disciple anymore. I think that's, that is true apart from the extraordinary grace of Christ. A better translation would be, go, tell the disciples, and especially Peter, because he desperately needs to hear this good news right now. Peter probably could not imagine that he could experience forgiveness for his denials. And these two words that we see in this passage, and Peter, are so significant in the foundation of the church and the role that Peter will play in the life of the church. Indeed, Jesus isn't finished with Peter, nor is he finished with us. Because Jesus is calling ordinary people to get caught up in his extraordinary grace. And at this point, it is time for Jesus to go fishing again. Turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. This is after the resurrection, but before Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. In the past, what we have to understand, in the past few weeks, Jesus had revealed himself to the apostles two times in Jerusalem. And both times the doors were locked, the apostles were, they were locked in inside. Jesus comes through the doors and stands before them and says, peace be with you. And now this is the third time that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. Chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said, cast the knot on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not even able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not even torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now one of the disciples dared, or now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying all this, he said to him, follow me. Peter and the others go back to what they know. They go back to fishing. And we can only assume that Peter is dejected and lost at this point in his life with the denials fresh in his mind. So they're fishing all night and they caught nothing. They probably chalked it up to tough luck. But we have to realize that sometimes God withholds blessings in our lives in order for us to pay attention to him and understand that all good, all good gifts come from him. A man stands on the shore and calls out to them to cast their net on the right side of the boat. Do you feel the deja vu here? The flashback to a couple of years ago. Sure enough, they catch so many fish this time that they're not even able to haul it into the boat. John's eyes are open to what is actually taking place, and he says to Peter, it is the Lord. And so consistent with Peter's personality, he just jumps in the water and starts swimming for Jesus because he cannot get to Jesus fast enough. I love that picture. Meanwhile, Jesus has prepared a fire with fish and bread and invites the disciples to come and have breakfast. It's the Son of God sitting with man over breakfast. Here's a question. Did the Son of God have nothing better to do than to make breakfast? Maybe we should think about it in this way. What did Jesus teach his disciples in the Lord's Prayer recorded in Matthew 6? Specifically, verses 11 and 12. Jesus taught them, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. What we must know is that Jesus forgave them their debts on the cross. And he came and said, peace be with you, the first two times that he revealed himself. He bought their peace by his blood. But now the third time that he revealed himself, he offers them bread. It's an extraordinary grace from our personal infinite God. After breakfast, Jesus has another fish to fry, namely Peter. Peter, do you love me more than these? Whether Jesus meant more than these 153 fish or more than these other disciples really does not matter for our context here. Jesus asked three times if Peter loves him, which corresponds to the three times of Jesus' denial. Jesus wasn't punishing him, but rather he was giving them the opportunity to confess his love for him three times. And in this way, Jesus reinstates Peter publicly. Jesus asked the question, do you love me? And then gives him a task, feed my sheep which the meaning of that would be, find and shepherd my people. And Jesus asked the same question to us, do you love me? And he gives us the same task, to find and shepherd his people. So where are his sheep? Acts tells us they're in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. 
In other words, they're in our families, they're in our neighborhoods, they're in our workplace, they're in our schools, they're in our communities within Lawrence, and they are beyond. I was thinking about that, especially in light of our college students. They are in your hometowns and the places that you'll be this summer. And many of you are going to be traveling throughout the world in a short list of where our college students will be going and where Jesus' sheep are. They're in Colorado Springs. They're in Jacksonville. They're in Vietnam. They're in Japan. They're in Mali. They're in Nigeria. They're in San Diego. They are in Chile. They are in Alaska. They're in Myrtle Beach. They are in Africa. For our youth this summer, they are in Romania. They are in Ethiopia. They are all over the map. And Jesus is calling men, women, and children at Grace EPC to get caught up in his extraordinary grace and to take it to the world around us. The work of catching people sometimes might seem as impossible as catching fish in the daylight. But we have to recognize that God's grace is in abundance. The disciples had caught 153 fish, yet we have the opportunity to get caught up in the reality of what Revelation 7 tells us, that one day in heaven there will be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Peter did get caught up in the extraordinary grace of God, and he became the rock. Acts 4.13 tells us that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the religious leaders of the apostles' day, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were astonished and perceived that they were just uneducated, common, and I would also insert ordinary men but they recognize that they had been with Jesus. So how are we doing at being with Jesus? Here's our final exam question. College students is coming up in a few weeks, but I'll give it to you now. And for the rest of us, we could consider this a continuing education question. The question is from Jesus. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him more than you did a year ago? Do you love him more than your possessions, more than your hobbies, your careers, more than your family and friends, more than your dreams and aspirations, careers, and anything else that might stand in front of Christ? His love for us and our love for him must be at the very center of our life. And the love of Christ qualifies us for the work that he has for us. And he frees us up to serve those who desperately need the gospel of grace. One last time in John 21, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And tradition holds that Peter indeed did follow Jesus all the way to his death. Tradition holds that that Peter was crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. And Jesus is calling each and every one of us to follow him. And he desires to meet us where we are right now, even at this moment, if we feel that we are at distance with Jesus. But he has no intention of us staying distant. 
He has no intention of us staying in the boat, so to speak. He calls us to follow him. And I want to end where I began. I want to end with the words from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Only Peter could write these words. And as I read these words once again, listen to them in the context of Peter's life. These will be my last words, and this will be our prayer together. 1 Peter 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, as a church, I pray that we would be humble to the point of not exalting ourselves, but to the point of exalting Christ. Lord, I do pray that in the proper time, you would exalt us in the sense of Would you place us in positions to glorify your name, to proclaim the extraordinary grace of God? Thank you for the way that you loved and cared for Peter. And thank you that your love and care for Peter extends as well to us. It's the same love. Thank you that you are faithful, even in your prayers, for Peter and to us. Thank you for the protection that we have in Christ. And we do praise you, Lord, as the God of all grace. And our prayer is that with all of us, you would restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us for the sake of glorifying you. And it is to Christ alone be all dominion forever and ever. Amen. And please stand for the benediction. The congregational response is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said... Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.